Chapter 5 is the one that I thought I would get in the most trouble for writing, you know. I figured people would be all over me for this, and so far they haven't been, but they, they still might be. So, and it's called, Do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. And I thought that would be contentious, first of all, because people would think, Well, I never dislike my children. It's like, Really? <laughs> really? <laughs> really? You know? You're going to really tell me that? God! You know, and there's a, more, there's a more horrifying element to that, too, because as a clinical psychologist, I've seen the full Freudian nightmare, I can tell you that. And, you know, the, I've seen families where it's like this, it's like the family members are standing in a circle, let's say, and each of them has their hands around each other's neck, and they're squeezing hard enough to strangle the other person in 20 years, and that's the family. It's like, and, you know, if you... If you haven't met a family like that, or, well, then you're not paying attention. And there's, a, there's some reasonable possibility that you're actually in a family like that. So the idea that parents can't dislike their children is like, God, how naive can you get? It's just, that's just, if you think that, man, you, I don't even know where you'd start to straighten yourself out. I could never dislike my children. It's like... Yeah, well, those are the people who produce the most monstrous children, too, I can tell you that. So, <clears throat> so, and then, there's this idea that Jung had, which I really love, which is the idea of the shadow. And, you know, it, it kind of got pop psychology and trendy, uh, sort of among the New Age types, too. But one thing I can tell you about Carl Jung is, no matter what else someone might say about him, he is absolutely not New Agey. If you read Carl Jung and you understand him and you're not terrified right to the depths of your soul, you haven't understood a damn thing you've read. And one of the things that Jung said about the shadow, which is the dark side of humanity, the dark side of each individual, was that its roots reached all the way to hell. And he meant something, he meant something very specific, both metaphysical and practical by that. The metaphysical element was he meant hell, literally and metaphysically, but he also meant the more proximal kinds of hell. And so what he meant was that if you were able to understand your dark side, then you would see in yourself a reflection of the behavior that was, that was present at Auschwitz, for example. And that the reason that people don't take the dark side of themselves seriously at all, and even confront the fact that it exists, is because no one wants to see that reflected within them. And no wonder. Like, it's, it's, it's absolutely no wonder. Jung also believed that that confrontation with the shadow was an inevitable barrier to enlightenment, that there was no, you know, Joseph Campbell, um, who was a popularizer of Jung to some degree, has become well known for saying, follow your bliss. And, and, and you know, Campbell learned virtually everything he knew from Jung. But Jung, that isn't what Jung said at all. He said, pursue what's meaningful and you'll encounter that which you least want to encounter. And that's, well, that's the dragon, right? That's the dragon that hoards gold, for example. And the dragon is also something that lives inside you. And it's not something that you take the encounter with lightly. There are very old stories about this. There's this Egyptian story about the god Horus, who was the Egyptian savior in some sense. And when he encountered evil, um, even though he was a god, he lost an eye in the battle. And so that's, that's the famous Egyptian eye, you know, that everyone still knows about. That's the eye of Horus that was torn out by Seth, who's the precursor to Satan. And so, and so it's, it's, it's no joke, that. It's no joke. Um, back to children. See, I kind of knew this when I had my kids. I, I'd already undergone that to some degree and, and understood what it meant to be a bad person, a terrible person. 
Um, and one of the things I knew that was that that manifested itself in families all the time. Tyrannical father, overprotective mother, more rarely overprotective mother, tyrannical, overprotective father, tyrannical mother. It's usually the other way around. Um, and the terrible pathological familial drama that Freud made much of in the early 20th century. I'd seen that in many, many situations. Dismal, brutal, awful. And I've seen parents punish their children. And you can also take a page from Nietzsche if you really want to punish your children or anyone else if you have someone you're interested in punishing, um, including yourself. <clears throat> you, don't, you don't ever punish someone you really want to punish for doing something wrong because that's actually a bit of a relief to them. You know, that's the theme of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. The murderer gets away with it and it's a relief to him when he gets caught. It's like, no, if you really want to punish someone, you wait till they do something good, then you punish them. Because that'll teach them. That's, you maximize the hurt that way. You decrease the probability that they'll ever do anything good again. And I'll tell you, man, if you want to have a good relationship with someone, that's one thing you don't do. You open your bloody eyes and if they do something that you would like them to do again, then you tell them how much you appreciated the fact that that happened and you hope that it replicates, you know. You see, that, that's, if, if there's one thing you can take away from tonight's lecture, that's, that's an extraordinarily useful thing to know. Watch and when people do something that they should do more of, say, look, I saw that you did this specific thing. I saw that it took some effort. Here's what it meant. Here's, here's how I observed it. It's like, keep that up. And man, if you love someone, you do that to them. That's, that's encouragement. That's such a great thing. So, Anyways, back to children. So I already knew that I was a pretty decent monster by the time I had kids. And I thought, well, my, kid, my kid's little, you know, like a baby or two-year-olds. Like, I'm a horrible monster. And so there's an uneven power problem here. I better not let that child do anything that really makes me angry. You know, now you hear, now and then you hear about something horrible that happens. I, when I was in Boston years ago, I read about a woman who plunged her two-year-old daughter's arms into boiling water. You think, well, how in the world can that happen? It's like, well, you know, she's probably hung over. She probably just lost her job. She's probably desperate in six different ways. She probably didn't have any decent disciplinary, disciplinary strategies for children. She probably didn't have anyone helping her. She was bitter and resentful and angry. And the child misbehaved at exactly the wrong moment. And like, you're going to be around your children a lot. And so you might want to have it so that they don't misbehave at exactly the wrong moment. Because all, all hell can break loose if they can. And I didn't want that to happen. And so, and I knew that it was easy for people to hate their children, even though they mouth the words that they love them all the time. I saw very little evidence of that in many situations. And so one of the things, you know, you have a natural affinity for children and even more, maybe a more powerful natural affinity for your own children. So that's a good start. But you don't want to set them up as an enemy against you. You don't want to allow them to engage in the kind of hierarchical challenge that makes you irritable and resentful. That's not a good idea. And if the things they do make you dislike them, the probability that they will make other people dislike them is extraordinarily high. And so you can consult your own irritability. And you can say, look, kid, I used to tell my kids this, you know, when they were three or four, I'd say, look, I'm not in a very good mood. And I'm likely to be unreasonable, so it'd be best if you'd go in your room and play for a while. It's like, I like you, man. You're a great kid, but like, get the hell out of here for a while. You know? And they were fine with that. We'd trained them already at that point to be able to go play by themselves in the room, you know, which is something a kid should be able to do anyways. But, but you need to know what sort of monster you are if you're going to be a good parent. And if you think, oh, I'm not a monster, it's like, oh, yes, you are. You're just an unbelievably unconscious monster. And that's actually the worst kind. 
So, and then the other thing about that chapter is there's an idea in it, and, and it's an idea that I think is well supported by the relevant literature, which is that your fundamental job as a parent, especially of a child from zero to four, is to make that child eminently desirable socially. So what you're, you're a successful parent if, when your child is four, all sorts of other children want to play with him or her. That's really the, that's like if you want one marker of whether or not you've been successful. That's it. Now, some children are a lot harder to get along with than others, and some children have a harder time playing. And so I'm not saying that every parent who has a child that isn't popular at four is, is at fault for that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying the reverse, which is you can be sure that you've been successful if your child is not popular exactly, but desirable as a playmate. And so then you think, well, what have you done for your child? Well, you've opened up the entire world of children to them. So because they know how to play, which is a very deep knowledge, and, and it starts to become inculcated probably at the breast, and certainly in the course of rough and tumble play at about two years of age, it's a deep embodied knowledge. They know how to play, like a good well-trained dog knows how to play, you know? You, you meet a new dog and you go like this, and the dog goes like this, you think, oh, that dog, it, it, I can go like this and it won't bite me, right? It knows how to play. And a, a kid who's awake and alert is just like that, like a well-socialized kid, if you know anything about kids, is you can take a four-year-old and make a little play gesture at them and they'll smile right away and start playing just right now. And that's what you want for your kids. And then everywhere they go, other kids like them and will include them in their play. And play is the way the children develop. And so if other children include them in their play, then the children develop. And the poor kids that don't get befriended at the age of four, with the literature on this is crystal clear. If your child is an outcast at the age of four, the probability that anything can be done about that is almost zero, no matter what you do. And I hate to be so blunt about that, but I've, I know the literature and that's what the literature suggests. And so, and then the other thing is if, if you don't allow your children to engage in dislikable behavior, then adults will like them because adults actually like kids. You know, one of the things I loved about having little kids in Montreal, I lived in a poor area in Montreal. There's a lot of rough guys around there. We used to roll our daughter around in a stroller and these rough guys, you know, like, God only knows what they were up to. They're rough looking guys. You know, we'd roll our daughter by them and they'd, they'd like smile and they'd crouch down and make little goo faces. And you know, they were, you, I tell you, one of the great things about having little kids is they bring out the best in other people. You see a whole side of humanity, even among the darker parts of humanity. You see a whole side of them that you wouldn't normally see and it's lovely. And the thing is, if you're good to your kid in, in the real way, you can help them maintain that tremendous attractiveness that they have as young children and to respond to adults properly like a puppy that wags its tail instead of growls and you know goes for your ankle and then wherever they go adults welcome them and teach them things and pat them on the head and smile at them genuinely instead of saying oh my god here comes that couple with that goddamn brat again you know which is a horrible that's a horrible thing to do to a child because then everywhere they go all the good all the goodwill is false. You know, there's nothing that you can do to someone that's more terrible than to put them in a world where all the goodwill directed towards them is false. That's a terrible thing. So anyways, that's what chapter, that's chapter five.